Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Mark has been a uh, whirlwind tour. We're in Mark chapter 3 today is where we'll pick up. Chapter 1, Mark went right from John the Baptist getting baptized to him going out into the wilderness, to him preaching, to him casting out demons and everything else and leprosy. And then in chapter 2, it's just and. He goes right into the next thing. He's preaching more, heals a paralytic, uh, eats with Roman sympathizers. That didn't make the religious elites very happy. Neither did the not fasting part, neither, neither did the eating on the Sabbath part. So it seems like from Mark's perspective, Jesus just keeps doing things that really a- aggravate the religious leaders of the day. Um, and so we see this image of Jesus that looks a little different than Matthew. We've also seen, and I want to point this out, through chapter 2, if you look at verse 10, he, get, he gives himself the title Son of Man. I, he's the essence of mankind. And then in verse 17 of chapter 2, he gives himself the title of physician. In verse 19, he gives himself the title of bridegroom. In verse 28, he gives himself the title Lord of the Sabbath. All four of those titles are things that if you look into the Old Testament would be indicators of Messiah. But to a Roman reader, a Gentile reader, they're just names. And so you'd be reading those things, looking at the aggravation of the Pharisees, and the way Mark set this up, is he doesn't tell you what those things, he doesn't connect them to the Old Testament like Matthew did. So you'd be reading this as a Roman just going, why are these Pharisees getting so worked up about Jesus? But from the Jewish perspective, he's using titles that were universally accepted as messianic titles. He's calling himself God when he does this. So it's interesting how Mark sets that up. He claims authority, dominion, and the power of God himself as God created the Sabbath when Jesus calls himself Lord of the Sabbath. He's calling himself God. So this gets the religious elites completely worked up, which I think after the resurrection would have been one of the questions of the Roman sympathizers. Why are these people so worked up about this? What did he do that was so bad to get crucified over? And so Mark's setting this up and showing that growing conflict between them. When we start in chapter 3, we start again with the word and. I think Mike pointed out we start with and for like five more chapters, right? And this, immediately this. Quickly he went to do this. So he's coming out of, if you look at chapter 2, verse 23, notice that it's the day we're on is the Sabbath. So we're still on the Sabbath day with the word and. We haven't moved off that day. They're eating in the grain fields, likely on their way to church, they're grabbing a little oatmeal. And they're having a little bit of breakfast as they go there. Now they arrive at the synagogue in verse 1 of chapter 3. And he entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had arrived, who had the withered hand, step forward. So we set up another conflict with the religious elites. If you're at all the kind of a a conflict-friendly person, Mark really appeals to you. Because you start to see a Jesus that likes a good spat. 
And so he's setting this up. And I love that Jesus' reputation at this point is that he would heal the guy. Do you see that they're watching him? They're waiting for him to do the next thing they can jump on. They're just ninnies. And they're looking at this stuff and they're building it up and they're watching for it, which proves that they expect he'll do it. So the reputation of Jesus is one who heals and cares for people and loves people. And that's what they hate. This is stunning until you meet these people, right? And they're rare, but they are the religious self-righteous types that they just don't like people that just love people and it's so easy for them. So the expectation admits that Jesus, A, has the power to heal, B, he has the heart to heal, and C, he has the eyes to see the need in front of him when it's there. Man, if we want to be more like Jesus, the power to heal the heart to heal, and the eyes to see it when it's there. Love this. They don't, they know about Jesus, but what's amazing is they don't follow Jesus. And how true that is for so many people. They know who Jesus is, but they don't follow him. So then verse 4, and then, then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. This is the sad part. He tries to engage them, and they won't even talk to him. Right? They're giving them the silent treatment. I won't even speak to you. I won't even talk to you. I don't, you don't deserve an answer, but they're in synagogue. And when a rabbi teaches in synagogue, often in the first century, they taught with questions. And the idea is somebody should answer the question because that's how teaching happened. It was rhetorical or Socratic, if you look at it that way. And so with nobody answering him, they're basically rejecting him as a teacher. When they, when they keep silent. It had to be frustrating for Jesus. And we see in, in verse 5, when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. This is a full-on conflict. And he's trying to help them see that doing good on the Sabbath is a good thing. He's trying to be merciful. He's trying to introduce them to the heart of God. And yet they just keep silent. And you can imagine they're just all red-faced. They're just fuming. Because he hasn't healed anybody yet. They can't jump on him yet. But he's just trying to get the heart. So as Jesus is a sinless person, verse 5 is a tough thing because sometimes we associate anger with sin. But righteous anger is not sin. So again, if Jesus is sinless, then when it says he looked around at them with anger, and you can look it up in the Greek, it's anger. It's exactly how we would think of that word. He's ticked off. Right? And just, it's a rare emotion for Jesus, but we do see Jesus get angry on occasion. He doesn't go to bed on his anger because he's going to deal with it, like right here and right now. But they could easily set aside all of their traditions to let this guy's hand be healed. They could easily do that. They could easily answer the question and say, it's, it's good to do good on the Sabbath, and then Jesus would just heal the hand. Or they could say, no, you can't do good on the Sabbath, and Jesus would then show them the word. So they're in a trap at some level. This is why they like to trap him. In Matthew, see, we see a lot more occasions where they try to trap Jesus, but here it's the other way around. Jesus isn't trapping them. He asks them a question they can't answer, so they don't. Because of the hardness of their hearts is what it says. Oh, that we're never this hard towards God. Jesus could have waited one day. He didn't have to do this on the Sabbath. He could have told that guy, could have given him his business card and said, see me tomorrow, I'll take care of the hand. But he doesn't do that. He purposefully does this on the Sabbath, knowing their anger, knowing the hardness of their hearts, because he wants to make a point of it. So he does it in their face. He does it right there. He's picking a fight. 
and Mark sets, has been setting this up for all of chapter 2. Jesus is ready to throw down with these guys. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. By the way, that's an impossible request. I just want to point that out. Sometimes God asks us to do things we can't do outside of his power. And that's why he asks us to do those things. Sometimes things are just beyond our ability. And God says, I want you to do that. And the only way for it to happen is to just obey and trust that God will actually make it happen. And then it says, and he stretched it out, which is amazing because he couldn't do that a few seconds ago. And now all of a sudden he can. God asks him to, God gives him the power, which is where we get the phrase, where God guides, God provides. And he's not going to stick you in a situation you can't handle. It might be tough, it might be hard, you might have lots of excuses. Yes, but my hand is withered, <laughs> right? Look, there's no blood flow, I can't do anything with it. He doesn't do any of that, he just stretches it out, he just obeys. This is the beauty of the situation. And his hand was restored as whole as the other, which had to be delightful. Now he can play guitar. God may ask something that seems totally impossible, but then provides miraculously the power to do it. He can heal a marriage. He can fix a relationship. He can repair your heart. He can take those things that make you anxious and make them evaporate like smoke and can do it in a second. God says to do something and he just does it. We put in the effort, but God does all the work. And I think that, that it's like back when we were in the Old Testament and Joshua 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, the priests that were bearing the ark come down to the Jordan River and the feet of the priests that bore the ark were dipped in the brim of the water because the Jordan overflowed all the banks at this time. And the waters came down from above and they stood and rose up in a heap very far from the city of Adam. God often asks us to put our feet in the water before anything happens. And it seems ridiculous because the river's overflowing. Everything in front of us looks impossible. The hand is withered. And then God says, I just want you to take that ark and go step in the water. Just do what I'm telling you to do. One day at a time, one step at a time, one piece at a time. And that's when consistently in the Bible, that's when we get to see the miracles of God. We just do the next thing. And it's not huge, and it's not amazing. We haven't made super big plans for it. We're just obedient in doing it. I don't think the guy with the withered hand had a plan that day to get his hand restored, right? I don't think he walked in going, okay, where do I sit so Jesus can see me? Like, they were waiting to see it. Maybe the Pharisees had a plan, and they put him front and center knowing that Jesus would see it. But the guy with the withered hand is, is happy to have his hand healed. Often the miracles of God are from a broken person that needs God to heal them, and then the miracles, God gets the glory for them. And I think we see that again and again. God took a broken Israel and showed them his glory. He takes broken people and shows them his glory so that when we're healed, we can give him the credit for it. Verse 6, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. The guy gets his hand healed and their hatred goes so deep they do something totally irrational and they buddy up with the Herodians. If you don't know what Herodian is, the governor of the area was Herod. Not the same Herod as Jesus' birth. It's a different Herod. It's almost a title. The family line of Edomites, which goes back to the Old Testament. That's a whole other thing. But the Herodians are siding with Herod, the Roman governor, and the Pharisees are the religious elite and the leaders. These people hate each other. But they unite around one thing. we got to get rid of this Jesus guy. He's too wild. He's too free. He breaks all of our special rules. He's going to be a problem for everybody because it's just chaos coming. And they go after him. And they side with their, the, 
enemies of their very belief system. And this is stunning that religious people will do this. If they want to get rid of what they perceive to be a threat, they'll do the most heinous evil thing and side with the most heinous evil people to get it done. Just to bring that guy down or bring that woman down. Just to take him down a notch. So they seek to destroy him. The word there really implies to kill him. But it could also imply just to destroy his ministry, to discredit him and get it so people don't follow that guy anymore. So the, this is that gospel of Mark showing us a clear split between the way Jesus is trying to show us and these, the way the Romans are already living and the way the Pharisees say that you should live. This is the gospel. There's good news. You don't have to be like the Romans and you don't have to be like these Pharisees. There's a different way. I love this when you talk to people that say, I don't go to church anymore, I just hate religion. And you're like, oh, I agree with you. I hate it too. That's why I just stick to the Bible. And I don't do religion, and we don't do those traditions, even though our chairs are fairly traditional. That's for Bonnie. The hostility of the religious elite, I want you to pay attention to this, because for some people that might get into this situation, causes Jesus to leave the synagogue. I'm done with you guys. And he walks away. We saw this in Matthew 2. This fine, at some point, it gets to be to where you can't work peacefully with these people, and Jesus just says, okay, I'm done with you. And when he walks out the door, he takes with him the blessing that God had given to the synagogue system. It's like what he tells his disciples. When you leave a place, if they, if they are a blessing, you bless their home, you pray a blessing upon them, but if they're not welcoming to you, you shake the dust off your feet, you take nothing with you, you can have it all. And you even leave the dust behind because it's not worth taking. And this is a, It's so tragic and so devastating because it seems so unjust. But the reality is Jesus doesn't need the synagogue. The synagogue needs the Spirit of God. And what the world doesn't understand is that that's a God-to-us direction. It's not an us-to-God direction. It doesn't go that way. So when you're in these kinds of situations or you run into the folks like this, Sometimes Jesus tries to talk with them, but there's a point where they put up this wall of silence. There's no talking to them anymore. There's no budging their stubborn hard hearts. And Jesus just packs it up and says, okay, I'm done with you. See you later. And it gets better from that point. Like suddenly the ministry begins at that point. This is the start of it all because I think God wants to demonstrate very clearly whose side he's on. So then you get to seven. Notice the word starts with but. There's this giant conflict and they're trying to destroy him, but Jesus withdrew with his disciples. You'd think that would be the word and. Mark likes the word and. But they use the word but. Him leaving the Pharisee thing is a but. It's another direction. It's a turning point in the ministry for Jesus. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. It's still Sabbath and they're going to go do the church of the open sky. They don't need the building to do church. A great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from the Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. When they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. You see what Mark's doing there? They left the synagogues. So you got these self-righteous jerks in the synagogue. I'm being blunt because I think they are. And then Jesus takes off, and what they got left is just themselves looking at each other. All the people walked out of the synagogue and went and followed Jesus. Amen? Like, that's the direction it should go. We should be the exact same way. We're just going to follow Jesus. 
We don't need permission to do that. We don't need religious elites telling us that's okay. We don't need our friends or family to think that's cool. We're just going to follow Jesus. And we're going to watch Jesus do wonders at that point. Verses 7 and 8, it's another reference to the very public nature of Jesus' ministry. We're seeing this as a recurring theme for Mark. Jesus did everything publicly. Everyone could see it. He didn't just preach to the Jews. He preached to the Gentiles too. And what Mark's doing there in verse 8, in verse 7 and 8, he's telling that virtually in north, south, east, west, they came from every direction to hear him, including the Romans. And Jesus welcomed that. John the Baptist in 1.5 and 1.28, the fame spread, Mark says. 1.39, he says, it was all throughout all of Galilee. 1.45, from every quarter. Chapter 2, verse 2, there was no room for anybody else. Chapter 2, verse 13, there was a multitude that was there. Chapter 2, 15, many followed him. And now in these verses, we get a great multitude followed him. Hundreds, if not thousands of people are going out to hear Jesus. Why? Because the withered hand got healed. Because the leper got healed. Because people were getting saved. People were being blessed. And he taught and he healed people. And it happens over and over and over again. And at that point, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they can't compete with that because there's actual power over here and there's nothing going on over there. So it says beyond the Jordan. It's very clear that's outside of Jewish territory. Tyre and Sidon are historically Philistine towns. Right now they're Roman towns. The things he was doing is what brought them there. So they're there for the miracles And the disciples are followers of what he's teaching. There's a difference between the two terms in the book of Mark. So the multitudes come because of what he does, but his followers come because of who he is. Ask that question to yourself. Are you here hearing the word of God because you know what God can do? Or are you here because you love God and you you want to follow him because of who he is? I think this, for me, was a huge growth point. When I was a kid, I loved Jesus and God because they were powerful, they were big, I could pray. But as you mature in your faith, you realize, no, I love God because of the nature of God. God's amazing. And as a wee little being on planet Earth, I'm going to worship an almighty God because he deserves all my worship I can give. And for some reason, God wants our worship. And I just think that's amazing. So I'm going to give him everything that I've got. Worship him because of who he is, not necessarily because of what he's done. In addition to that, God keeps doing things, which is really great. It's icing on the cake. But the cake itself is who God is. Verse 10, for he healed many. Not just the Jews, but everyone. And again, Mark's just making this point here. It's all over the place. Verse 11, he just keeps going. And and the unclean spirits, wherever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Okay, you can walk away from self-righteous people. See ya, goodbye. But the spiritual battle continues after Jesus leaves the synagogue. And the spiritual battle follows you. Right? Do you get this? So now he's got demons trying to do this. What's wrong with calling him the Son of God? Why is that a problem? He is the Son of God, right? But there's a, 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 he sternly warns them that they should not make him known. He's introduced himself as the son of man. He's, a, he's the perfect human, right? And, and from a Roman perspective, he's the ideal Roman citizen. He's a servant. He works hard. He takes care of other people. He's responsible. But, he, but this idea of son of God, to have the essence of God himself, is to deify him before Jesus wants to be deified. And so for Mark, we're going to see this keep coming up as a point. 
Jesus is trying to show humanity how humanity can live in a way that's right with God, son of man. The demons want people to see him as, a, as the son of God because then he's not showing us how we can live. He's better than us, right? You ever notice like you'll find people and they'll be like, oh yeah, I was doing this and this. And you'll say, well, it's easy for you to say, you have these advantages and I don't have those advantages. And it's a way we can dismiss ourselves from trying to ever even attempt to achieve something that that other person achieved. But what if God comes in human form? It's really easy for us to say, well, of course Jesus beat temptation. He's God. And then it excuses us from ever having to fight that battle. And that's what the demons were trying to do, is to deify him before it was that time. Where Jesus just showing the, pre the teaching, the preaching, he wanted to be Messiah and be known as Messiah, the human savior of the Jewish people. So son of God here, having the essence of God, being the, the very incarnation of God, is something the demons recognize and they see. Notice that just like the Pharisees knew Jesus could heal and they, they expected him to heal, the demons know who Jesus is and they expect him to be that person. So this isn't praise that they're giving Jesus. It's that they're trying to make, they're trying to affect Jesus' ministry by elevating him before he's asking to be elevated. So the demons speak a kind of truth, but they do it in a way that dismisses God's plan. And I, this is a really nuanced kind of thing. I, I just think this is fascinating. The next story is going to show how Jesus responds to this. And notice that the, at the beginning of verse 13 starts with the word and. These demons do this and there's this response to it that Jesus has. And so in the same way that he responded to the Pharisees by just leaving the synagogue, see you later, we don't need to hang with you anymore, he's going to respond to these demonic people that he sternly reprimands. And he's going to act in a certain way. The way he acts, I want, before I read these verses, he appoints disciples and he starts teaching disciples how to do what he's showing them to do. He goes right back to being the son of man and he acts that way. So I, I, to me, this is just fascinating how he responds to the spiritual attacks. He goes out and actually spends time in relationship with his brothers in the faith. Think about that. Because we can do that too. As son of man, he's demonstrating how to beat spiritual attacks. You're feeling down, you feel oppressed, you feel angry, you feel worried. Go fellowship and either be making disciples or be discipled by somebody else. Be in fellowship with people. Connect with folks. So again, this is his method for sharing the gospel. He disciples a few people rather than multitudes. And I, Again, if Jesus disciples 12 people, why do we think we need to have thousands of people at something? Like, honestly, it's a really simple kind of concept. The he's already moving through his gospel message. Again, the opening of Mark, this is the gospel. Gospel message so far. He's ticked off the religious leaders, check. He's gotten huge crowds, check. He's going to abandon them and go train these disciples. That's his next step in this good news. The good news is he doesn't care about the multitudes that are looking at what he does. He cares about the disciples that love him for who he is. And again, just praise the Lord. Verse 13, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. He called his friends. I just want to hang out with these people. This is how Jesus behaves. And again, Mark gives us a truly unique perspective on Jesus. Jesus hung out with people he liked. Even Judas. You know, sometimes we like people and we know they've got their flaws. So, 
He called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. And then he appointed 12 that he might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. He's going to disciple them and teach them how to do exactly what he's doing. The demons call him son of God. And then he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to hand this power off to the church. So he shows that. He does it in action. He pulls these disciples so that he can teach them how to do what he does. Because it's not about him. It's about a bride that he's trying to establish. So you get a sense of why it was why what the demons were saying was so inappropriate, right? And I think sometimes we do this with people that teach the word a lot. We even do this today. We elevate, frankly, there's people that would elevate me for no good reason. Like, I'm, I'm just teaching what the Bible says. But the goal of doing this is so that you can then teach what the Bible says. And you can show other people how to teach what the Bible says. That's the church. So we learn how to do it because we do it together. And frankly, you get a day off from your own Bible study. You get to have somebody else do your Bible study. So it's like a break. It's a day of rest. So verse 15, and to have the power to heal sicknesses, to cast out demons, everything we saw in chapter 2. He's training them to do all these things. I think this is exciting. Then it gets the list. This is the list of these 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boanerges, or something like that. That is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. Remember Matthew, we saw it was also the son of Alphaeus? So some people wonder if those two were brothers, but it doesn't actually say they were brothers. That might be because James and the rest of the family disowned Matthew when he became a tax collector, in which case they wouldn't call themselves brothers anymore. Well, that's interesting. Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Calls the twelve. It says that they're appointed. So um, he went up in the mountain, called to those whom he wanted. They might be there, verse 14. Then he appointed the twelve. What does it mean to appoint? And when we use the word appoint, it has something to do with like you get an appointment. You get assigned a position or a job. And the word doesn't change much. Poeo in the Greek means to make or bring forth something. So he's calling these 12 men to make them into something that they weren't before, to appoint them and to turn them into something. To construct a thing is the, the meaning of the root word. Jesus made disciples. That's the language we use in the Bible. He didn't recruit them. He didn't persuade them. He didn't convince them. He made them. That's a really interesting perspective as to how we think about discipleship and what it is. The same that Jesus commands in the Great Commission is the same language we see here. Jesus does it first and then he asks us to do it. Here it is, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we use the language make disciples, we need to look very carefully at what Jesus is doing here. He went up on a mountain, you know, found a place to meet for Bible study, and he called to those that he himself wanted to be. He called his family together. And we're going to see as we go through this chapter, this is about family. I just think this is so theologically thick and wonderful. So he appoints them, he makes them so that they can preach and have the same power that he's had through chapter 1 and chapter 2. That's Mark. Like, he's like, this is what Jesus came to do. And this is the gospel, Mark verse 1. 
This is the gospel. It's good news that Jesus is equipping us and setting us up to do exactly what he did on earth. Son of man. And we're getting equipped to do those things. To be with him. Notice the language there in verse 14. That they might be with him. The purpose here isn't to just persuade somebody, hand them a Bible and kick them in the butt. Right? The point is to hang out. To be together. So Jesus is going to live with these men for, tw- for three years through his ministry before the cross. Honestly, I can't think of a better, more merciful, more graceful God than one that incarnates and does this. That's the God I want to serve. So much more than Buddha or, you know, the Allah. Like, this is a God that wants to be with the people that love him. Living life together is how you learn. That's what a point it is. First job of a disciple then in the book of Mark is to be with Jesus. We can't do any ministry if we're not with Jesus. And we don't live that way. We don't spend time with Jesus. We can't learn from Jesus. Notice that to be with Jesus comes before preaching anything. If your relationship with Jesus is on the rocks, don't try to teach people. Take a break. Preachers only as good as the time they spend with Jesus. And honestly, this word doesn't come alive unless the Holy Spirit makes it come alive. Otherwise, you just fall asleep when I talk. Right? If anything's going on in your hearts, because the Holy Spirit's doing a work because you're reading the word thoughtfully and meditating on each line. Jesus lives it, and then he teaches it. That he might send them out to preach. Jesus is building the church here. Right? This isn't just a Jesus movement. It's the church. It's something that's really key, and what he's sending them out is to be preachers. And what we're seeing right now is we have a church where preacher is like a job title. What That's the preacher. But that's not how Jesus set up the church. The church was set up so that all of us are preaching or speaking the word of God to the people in our lives. We're all doing it. And I think a healthy church has different people leading different Bible studies, and that we're practicing it together. We talk about it over lunch. We play with ideas so that we understand them, spending time with the fellowship of the saints, spending time with God in our day-to-day life, to preach, to be with Jesus, to preach, to have the power to heal, and to cast out demons. These are progressive. Like, at some level, like, if you're in a church, you should be looking and seeing that people do get healed. And this is tough for people. Well, you know, healing happened with Jesus because he was establishing the church. No, for 2,000 years, people have gotten healed in the church. In fact, I forgot to print this off because I just saw it this morning, um, but I'm going to see if I can pull it up super quick. They just got done with these studies on young people, ages uh, 15 to 20, and what they're finding out is that we have a generation of young people that go, don't go to church. Dr. Josh Pachter, Packard is the executive director of the Springtide Institute. From 13 to 25-year-olds, they found out, and this is now data and proven, Religion is good for you. Faith and spirituality are good. They did massive surveys, and they found out that if you're a person who believes in some kind of higher power and you have a connection with that higher power, frankly, the connection part kind of narrows it down to Christianity for me, you're generally flourishing more than your peers. Those who pray tend to flourish in all areas, including mental health, wellness, and stability. Well, that's amazing. You know, they had to do research to find that out. But we're starting to see that that's what Jesus is doing. Be with Jesus, learn to preach, 
learn to do these things and healing should be happening too and casting out demons. Sometimes we think this is big and elaborate because Hollywood loves to do this like, like a massive thing with special effects and vomit throwing all over the place and whatnot. To cast out an unclean spirit is to simply get those spirits out of your own life first, but recognize them and call them out when you see them. The hard-heartedness of the Pharisees is a spiritual state that they're in that Jesus addresses by walking away from them and not giving them any more authority. So I think sometimes we, we over-glorify what that looks like, but the idea is, boy, somebody comes in and they got a hard heart, an unclean spirit, nastiness, even demon presence, all of that's got to go because we're not here to live like that. We're here to embrace the power of God and live that way. So those that are close to Jesus are then sent by Jesus to do the things that Jesus empowers. Stretch out your hand. He's not going to ask you to do things that he's not going to empower you to do. The job of a disciple then is to be with Jesus, to preach it, to heal people, and to get rid of unclean spirits, to fight a spiritual battle. We are warriors and we are in an army and we fight those battles together. And that not only means going out into the world and doing it, but amongst ourselves, helping each other with our wellness and spiritual health, to encourage each other, to be with each other. I had a friend who texted me this week and said he was feeling lonely. And it broke my heart because I'm up hunting with Grant in the north, which is good. I wanted to spend time with my son. But that's the sort of thing where, man, if I was in town, I'd be like, where are you at? Let's hang out. And I just missed the opportunity this week. And I think, oh, Lord, help me catch the next time because I want to be there for my friend. And that's casting out unclean spirits. It's taking care of each other. It's worrying about each other. Not in an unhealthy way, but in a godly way. So we pray for things. We expect God to heal. We expect God to resolve situations. And those situations can be tough, and they can last for years. Twelve people are called. Twelve people are made. And I don't think we can... <laughs> Mark is a conflict kind of gospel. He's, if you look at 16 and 17, he's calling fishermen that have nicknames, Peter the Rock, James and John, the Sons of Thunder. This is, I think, for the Roman reader, interesting because he translates Boanerges. I don't know how to pronounce that, I'm sorry, which is an Aramaic word. So when he translates that into son, Sons of Thunder, he's writing to an audience that's not Jewish. And that's why we say he's writing to a Roman audience. He's translating Aramaic where most Jews would know Aramaic. So he translates that word. He tells us the nicknames. I don't know about you, but if you've got a nickname for somebody, it's probably because you've spent some time with that person. Nicknames are generally affectionate. They're things that happen when you love someone and you care about somebody and you give them a nickname. Right? So the fact that Jesus assigns nicknames to his people tells us a lot about how they live together, that they were in relationship with each other. They knew each other. Mark goes on in verse 20. Matthew is, lists Peter and Andrew together because Matthew lists the brothers. Notice that Mark doesn't do that. He lists the closest three to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He lists the people that were most intimate with Jesus because I think that's kind of the point of this passage. The demons call him the Son of God. He's above us. He's, he's so far beyond all of us. And he goes off and he's like, no, these are 12 guys. I'm going to train them in because any human can do what I'm doing right now. I'm the Son of Man. And I'm showing humanity how to live. Then he gets to these other kinds of things. Um, I think it's interesting when you read the book of Mark, who's largely influenced by Peter. A lot of people think that Mark was just helping Peter write it down, that Peter lists himself in the first position. I think that's the kind of Jesus I know. And I joke about this. You guys know I do. I'm God's favorite. 
And I think that's a super healthy, mature disposition. And I wish for all of you to feel the same way, that you live your life in such a way that you know you're God's favorite. And we have a big enough crowd. It's like having a great grandfather, and we all feel like we're the favorite grandchildren because that's the kind of grandfather we have. But we have that kind of a God, too, that we can all go through life and feel like, man, God just is always there for me. He's always providing for me. Every day, I have what I need. And we all feel like we're specially loved by God. And I think Peter, when he puts his own name first, it's because he's thinking, I'm the, most, I'm the closest to Jesus of all of them. When we read the book of John, we'll get a very different perspective. John does the same thing. He thinks he's the closest one. He's the one that Jesus loved, remember, when you read John? And he points it out. Because they probably sat and argued. In the same way they get nicknames, they have these little ongoing arguments, like who did Jesus love more? Did he love me more or you more? And then it shows up in their writing, which I think is super intimate, personal, that affectionate thing. Yeah, who's the favorite? Maybe Grant and Katie argue about that. Who's the favorite? Who does dad love the most? But we should all feel that way about God. And we should have that answer. Oh, God loves me the most. Just watch how he blesses my life. And it's kind of fun, even through trials, even through tough things. He gives Judas Iscariot. Iscariot means from Cariot, which would be like saying, Judas, the city guy to the, to the Galileans. Like, he's the guy that, you know, probably had a little bit nicer robes. He's an urban dweller. He says Matthew, and then he also lists Simon the Canaanite. That's another way to say he's a zealot. That's not like to be from Canaan. There's only one A, not two. But the Canaanite hills were where the zealots would train. They were a group of people that were secretly trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. So you got a tax collector and a zealot on the same team. This isn't good team picking. You know, and, but Jesus does it because it's about relationship. Puts all these people together. It, by having Peter and Andrew and James and John as fishermen on the same lake, they would have been competing with each other for fish. I think that's pretty interesting too. So you've got people that would, these natural enemies that are gathered together. So if the Pharisees can side up with the Herodians, well, Jesus can play that game too. We can bring people from all walks of life under the umbrella of the church. What a great thing. Judas is the only one from the south of Israel, right? So most of them are from this Galilean area. So Judas being brought in, it's interesting. Mark doesn't really tell us how we got there or why we got there. He just notes that he's the one that portrays Jesus. And he puts him last on the list, which means he, he's the one that knew Jesus the least on Mark's list. So you, so you got this response to the, the demons, which is to build a church. <laughs> I just think that's so great. The way Mark said, and he moves so fast through it, but you can see what Peter's doing here, right? And so Jesus is like, you want to beat back the kingdom of hell? Let's build a church made of all people from all walks of life that naturally, in an earthly sense, probably don't get along with each other, but under Jesus, they get along great. Verse 20, then the multitudes came together again. Oh, they found him so that they could not so much as eat bread. Mark points out the problem with crowds. They press. There's too many of them. They're demanding. They don't even allow room for them to eat. Ever been so busy you didn't get a chance to eat? So that's the problem with these crowds. Verse 21, But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he's out of his mind. When it says his own people, they're referring to Jesus' family here. It's fascinating. The response to demons is to build a church and then we get this idea that his own family didn't think this was cool. What are you doing hanging out with all these people? 
So the family and friends that are from his upbringing can't see past his upbringing. They know who Jesus was. They grew up with Jesus. Matthew 10, 36, a man's foes shall be them of, their own, of his own household. Sometimes a prophet is least loved in his own land. Sometimes the people we grew up with don't see us for what God's made us into. They see us for who we were 10 years ago. John 7, 5, neither did his brethren believe in him. It's really clear in all of the Gospels, Jesus' immediate family did not believe he was the Messiah until after the resurrection. There's no indication that they were. So this flies in the face of Roman Catholics, right, that venerated Mary. You know, but they didn't necessarily believe he was the Messiah, according to Mark in the Gospel. So Mary didn't travel with Jesus on the road. Like, that didn't happen. This is the interaction that's biblical. They thought he was out of his mind. Uh, verse 21, he is out of his mind. He's nuts. He's picking fights with Pharisees, and these were good Pharisee-following families. So why is he picking fights with those folks? Anyone who chooses to follow Jesus, this is one possible reaction. You got the reaction of the Pharisees, hard-heartedness. You got the reaction of the demons to hyperinflate Jesus and make him unreachable and unattainable. Then you got the reaction of Jesus' family, which is to think that, that this person's nuts. This is so sad. Jesus leaves carpentry. He, this is why he might be considered nuts. He left a perfectly good job. Carpenters were middle class, still are. Jesus angered all the religious leaders. Why did he do that? He's popular and he's famous, but he keeps walking away from his fame, leaving the crowds. He's claiming to be the essence of humanity, son of man, and the Messiah. That would make, make most of us think that the person was crazy if they ran around calling themselves Messiah. And, and now he's skipping meals, which I think is insane. Right? He's just not getting in his food. When we follow Jesus, we often make new choices, new choices with our career, new choices with our heroes. We often skip popularity and worldly success to do the thing that God's called us to do. We claim Jesus does miracles to our non-believing friends and family. Right? That might make them think you're nuts. We say God speaks to us. Have you ever thought about that language for a non-believer? What are you talking about, God speaks to you? Have you lost your mind? We say that the Bible is a living document. We say it because we've seen it. We, be we believe it because we see how it works. For some weird reason, we study the Bible and our life improves, right? So we say the Bible is alive and well and sharper than any two-edged uh, two two sword. And people pick up the book and say, this is not a sword, it's a book. We must have lost our minds. We claim Jesus is the Messiah, and then we eat our meals and get together once a week on Sundays to hang out with other people that have lost their minds. From the world's perspective, this just looks nuts, y'all. But we just keep saying, but yet we're healed, and our spirit is being cleansed. Demons are being cast out. Our health, we're feeling our mental well-being is better, and we know that, and we can testify to it, but the people outside of that circle just think it's crazy. From the flesh, Christianity makes no sense at all. We have to respect that, how we sound to other people. But when the spirit, you realize, oh, it's all true. All of it's true. And the more I dig in, the more I'm blessed. God will not be a debtor to any of us. We give to God, he gives back. We fight sin, he rewards us for it. I love our God. Remember uh, in verse 6, they were trying to destroy him, right? 
This is, they've made that decision back in verse 6. So step one to destroy somebody like Jesus, you try to discredit them. Verse 22. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem and said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. They're trying to discredit him. And the scribes who came down, this delegation, it almost sounds like they came, when you come down in Israel in any direction, you're coming down from Jerusalem. These are the bigwigs, the fuddy-duddies, right? This is the, the boss comes down. So this delegation comes down from Jerusalem, and they make this determination not because they've listened to Jesus and followed his ministry, but because they just don't like him, and they're trying to destroy him. So they come down, they say he has Beelzebub. This is an interesting accusation. The accusation is that Jesus is possessed. So again, it's not like Hollywood makes possession out to be. They have a very different understanding of possession. Possession is simply, it's a disposition they have, because Jesus doesn't have foam coming from his mouth. But yet they make an accusation of demon possession, which is what he's doing and saying is influenced by the enemy. That Satan himself has taken Jesus. Beelzebub is like saying, you're not the Messiah, you're simply possessed by a powerful demon. They don't deny his power. They don't deny that he casts out demons. They just think it's a giant scam, which is so fascinating. Why wouldn't you just join him in joy and happiness? Why wouldn't you go feast with the tax collectors where there's, where, where there's something amazing happening? This guy's withered hand gets healed. Why wouldn't you just go follow him and hear what he has to say? But no, they, they simply make an accusation. This is another common response to following Jesus, to twist it and say, what you're doing is actually bad for you. And so this is a really interesting thing. I think we see a lot of this today in our world today. We just use a little bit different language. So we, we cast out a lot of our own demons. We stop hanging around with filth. The worst part about being a Christian is all that stuff that used to be so awesome, you just feel is disgusting now. Like, you don't want to have anything to do with it. So suddenly you're changing in such a way that people are like, why don't you like to come party with me anymore? Why don't you enjoy this music anymore? Why don't you watch these shows with me anymore? And the answer is because God's doing a new thing in me and there's a Holy Spirit in me and I just feel guilty as sin every time I do that stuff. So I just don't want to do it anymore. That makes sense. But for the outsider that hasn't found that new life in Christ, it looks like you're leaving the things that they think are good for them. This is a really interesting thing. When we look around and say, these are things we just don't want to be a part of anymore, another way that people can take that is that we're being judgmental. Well, you're just judging me. And it's amazing how quick they go to that, you're judging me thing. And I think it's because the Holy Spirit's trying to work on them too. And you can remind them, no, actually I didn't say anything about you, I was talking about me. And do I have a right to not be part of those things if I don't want to be? Like, is that such a bad thing that I don't want to do that? And the weird thing is a lot of those things that they think are so great, let's, let's take, for instance, drinking, right? Drinking destroys people's lives. So why is it such a bad thing that I don't want to do that thing anymore that often will destroy people's lives, right? And I know some of you still have, like, alcohol is a weird conversation topic. I'm talking about drinking to get drunk and then waking up the next day and you can't think straight right? Why was that such a bad thing to quit? You know, yet you see this all the time. You'll even see it in the popular media. I don't trust somebody that doesn't party. You're like, why would you not? Why? That makes no sense at all. So in the same way that that looks nuts to us, the Christian lifestyle can look nuts from the other end. And again, this isn't to like sympathize with the scribes here. 
right? They're accusing Jesus of being Satan himself. That's what you call blasphemy when you call God something that he's not. Um, so he called them to himself and he said to them and he spoke, he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? How does that work? And again, he's engaging with that attack or that unbelief to the degree to which they'll engage with them back. If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but has to end. So no one can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he'll plunder his house. That implies that Jesus' intention is to plunder somebody's house. Isn't that an interesting way to phrase that? Jesus came to this earth to take territory that had been stolen away from God's sovereignty. What Satan did. And by healing people and changing people and preaching the good news of the gospel, he's actually taking territory with every heart that changes. So Jesus is like, I'm here to bring the gospel, Mark verse 1, right? And in order to do that, I'm going to bind the demons that are getting in the way of that. I'm going to challenge those things and cast them out and get them the heck out of these people. So they accuse him of having a demon. The demon they accuse him of is Beelzebub. That's an interesting thing. At Ekron, they actually worship a god called the Godfly, or the Lord of the Flies. That's where we get the name of the book. So Beelzebul, and the way it's spelled in Mark, is not the way that the Ekronites spell it. They call it Baalzebub, a descendant of Baal, the Baal, the king of the Baals. So Baalzebub, when you change it to Zebul, it means dung or flies. So this is the way the Jewish people did it. We've had this discussion before. It's a, it's a, it's a play on words. It's shifting the meaning of something by slightly mispronouncing it. And in doing this, the, the Jewish people called him Beelzebul, the Lord of the Flies, Lord of the Poop, Lord of the Dung, where the people that worshipped him called him Baalzebul, right? And they just changed it a little bit. It's like when we make fun of things, right? And sometimes we do that with a sparkle in our eyes. I think Matthew's doing it because it's at this point a tradition to mispronounce that if you're Jewish. So, and, and to not give a lot of credit, like this isn't being sensitive to the other person's religion. This is calling their religion the poop fest festival. And so they're not being very politically correct at all. Um, but it's an intentional derision of a God that defies Yahweh. It's really similar to what we've seen a few times in the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't use the term. Instead, he uses the term Satan. So Jesus doesn't lower himself to use that language, right? He just says Satan because that's what's going on. Adversary is the, the Hebrew word for that. He's the head adversary. First Chronicles 21, Job and Zechariah both use the term Satan. Some people believe Satan is a, 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 a shifting of the word Natash, which means serpent. So if, actually, if you take Natash and pronounce it backwards, Satan and Natash are like opposites of each other. They're very closely connected. But there's arguments that the serpent in the garden wasn't Satan and that sort of thing. You've got to stretch to do that. What we see is throughout the Old Testament, the term Satan is introduced in Job, one of the earliest written books that there is, and it gets maintained all the way to Zechariah, one of the latest books that was written in the Bible. So that term comes up, Satan is the head of all adversarial forces against God. So when they say, oh, Beelzebub is in him, they're using the secular term for the Lord of the Flies, the head of all the Baals, and Jesus says, uh-uh, and he changes the name to Satan. 
can Satan cast out Satan? So it's not that there's a real ball there. These are all demonic forces that are less than God at a very basic level. So Jesus uses the term Satan. By this time, Satan has become a character in Jewish tradition, and it's a complement to the power they see in Jesus that they're assigning him the power of the most powerful demon there is. So the question, the debate of people who hated Jesus wasn't that he didn't have power or that he wasn't doing miraculous things. They admitted that was all happening. Same thing with the resurrection. The debate wasn't whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. What we see in the first century was a debate over what that meant and what that implied theologically. But there was really no question about it happening. In the same way here, there's no question about the miracles. The question is, how are the miracles happening? Verse 24, if a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. This is the same response we should have when people accuse us of things that aren't true. How can that be? And I think sometimes this is where we use the term witness. Our witness is what's going on in our life. We simply tell our own story. Yet this is what's happening. And this is how that, it's there. Bad kingdoms don't do good things. If what I'm doing is so bad for me, why are there such good results? And why can't you just be happy for those good results? And remember, in part, this is his family that's, that's part of at question and not believing him. These changes that you see in me are of a spiritual nature. How can me being happy be a bad thing? Isn't me being happy a good thing? And why, well, you know, so you, again, you get that, that, that thing, well, why don't you want to do this and why don't you want to do that? Because when I do those things, I, I'm not clear thinking anymore. I'm not happy at the end of the day. They have residual effects that I don't like, right? They have impact on my other relationships. So people continue to do the things that Satan wants them to, which is ultimately destroying their life. And God calls you away from those activities. Again, this is a perspective on sin. If I'm doing things that are sinful, it's not that the Bible is restraining us from all the fun in life. You see how that, the world frames that? Well, you're not doing all the fun stuff. Uh-uh. I'm not doing the stuff that wrecks me. I'm, the laws of God are there to protect me and help me to have a joyful and a happy life. It's not that I'm a legalist. It's that for me, these things are healthy. And they make life better. So I'd like to do those things. I'm actually doing the things that I want to do because they bring joy, peace, love, happiness, fruits of the Spirit, patience, endurance. And there's even research that shows that. <laughs> like People that do these things actually have a better life. Well, amazing. Thanks for that research. It's wonderful. I'm glad it's there. Here's a question. Why don't you come do the things that would also be good for you in your life? Why don't you come to church with me? Why don't you come to Bible study with me? Why don't you come to Mike's poker night with me? Why wouldn't you do the things that would be a blessing to your life and fellowship with the saints and do that? But it's weird because those people, it's like everything in them, that's the one thing they can't do. I can't get closer to the things that would be good for me in life, right? I'm on a path of destruction and that's going to make me feel like I'm on a path of destruction. In the same way I don't want to go to a place that makes me feel filthy, they don't want to go to a place that reminds them that they're filthy. And it's the spiritual battle. It's the spiritual battle of getting people to turn towards God, what we call repenting, and, and getting their life redeemed or repurchased by God. And that's the, battle, that's the spiritual battle. So when Jesus talks about binding the strong man, he's talking about that very battle that we fight when we try to bind Satan in people's life and clog it up so that they can get free of that garbage and be happy again. 
So no, Jesus is not filled with Beelzebub, and he's not, he's not Satan. He's actually much stronger than Satan. He has a claim over territory that Satan can't fight. Satan might have some level of dominion, but Jesus is binding those demons, and he's taking that territory back. He's plundering his house. The word plunder there is like when pirates steal, they take whatever they want. And the church of God, when it comes to souls, when we get praying, we take whatever, whatever soul we want, and we move the kingdom of God forward. The only thing stopping that is that battle where people choose to live in destruction. But we can pray for them. We can, if frankly, you get a grandma praying for them, it's over. Like, it's just a matter of time, right? That daily, persistent, like, that is how we storm the gates of hell, through prayer. We see Jesus' response in how he does this. What's interesting as he responds to the scribes is we do not see the response of the scribes. They don't, there's no conversation that goes back the other direction. It's almost like he binds them. Do you see that in the verses? So he gives them this explanation, and we don't see any evidence of how they reacted. Like, did they quietly walk away? Did they get more angry and more mad? Nothing. So as he talks about binding the strong man so that he can take back territory, they are tongue-tied, and they can't keep going with what they're doing. So we do see him crucified, and we can assume that um, there were many people taken in by this because the mobs turned against Jesus. So the lie has impact on those people that are not following Jesus because of who he is. They just want to see more miracles, and when the miracles stop, they're happy to crucify him later on. So this lie of the scribes does take root in some people's hearts, and that's just sad. It's tragic. God does give us free will, so we can't force people to seek their own healing. So before this good thing that Jesus is doing takes root, the enemy comes in with this Beelzebub thing and they snatch away those seeds that Jesus is planting. The seeds land on ground and the enemy comes in and just snatches it away. Right? And that's the, I think that's, that's sad when that happens. Again, they're saying that the spirit in him is evil and not good. He, so they're virtually calling the Holy Spirit an evil being. Right? That's the unpardonable sin. So people really struggle with this next part because this is what we call the unpardonable sin. The one thing you can do that can't be forgiven. So let's dig into that. Verse 28. Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Notice the switching between Beelzebub, Satan, unclean spirit, demon. It's all synonymous for them this is in essence denying the spirit of god in jesus christ so here's the problem with that even the blackest of sinners recognize jesus as good they'll even get a tattoo sometimes right so even people that know oh, i'm on my way i'm gonna burn in hell the things i've done i'm not good but jesus yeah jesus is good i know jesus is good they're just not repenting but they at least acknowledge that he's good when you actually call jesus evil which we're starting to see in our public discourse, that's a whole new level because it's the one thing that gives forgiveness that you're rejecting and calling bad. So that's a pretty hard path to get to heaven if you don't go through Jesus. At least it's impossible. So it's, the, it's not that it's an unforgivable. It's that you can't be forgiven when you're in a state of calling Jesus evil. That doesn't work. So there is this idea that 
the unpardonable sin is never an accident. It's simply acknowledging that people hate God and that you're not going to be with God. Why would you want to be with God if you hate him? That heaven would be a miserable place. So you can't get to heaven when you hate the things of God and, and there's no desire to be there. So it says, and I want to be really careful with the language here. It says, but is subject to eternal condemnation. So because this attitude is something that makes you subject to eternal condemnation, it doesn't necessarily mean you will be eternal, eternally condemned. In other words, people take out of this verse and say, that's the unpardonable sin. Well, it's an unpardonable sin if you die and maintain that belief. You can't go to heaven, of course. But if you're subject to eternal condemnation, that does leave room for repentance. And some of these scribes and Pharisees, like Nicodemus is probably among them, do turn and change their mind. After the resurrection, thousands of Jews turn and follow Jesus. So the idea that God can't forgive is a weird condition that we put on God here. But he, he's not going to force somebody to go to heaven when they hate him. And that seems like a good God to me, not a bad God that's powerless to forgive things. So to be subject to eternal condemnation. So they accuse Jesus and he responds, with, he responds to the lie of Beelzebub with a deep and true thing. And that is, you guys are, and again, it's the scribes, it's the religious leaders accusing Jesus of being evil. And he's like, you guys are in trouble. You guys are subject to eternal condemnation with that attitude that you have right now. Look at what you're doing. Take a good, careful look at it. Also, imagine they want to destroy Jesus before. Now they really want to destroy Jesus. He just told them they were going to burn in hell. That's not making buddies with the scribes, right? You guys are on your way to hell. And, and, I, and again, that message is tough. We live in a culture that, even a church culture, that really hesitates to say things like what Jesus just said. What you're doing right now is unforgivable. And there is no forgiveness when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit and, and call God less than who he is. So good luck getting to heaven, you guys. And that kind of language in the church today is just almost unheard of. Like you guys are, but, but yet it is something that does convince people to change their mind and repent sometimes. You are on a path of destruction. Notice that this is all on the Sabbath. The crowds are all around Jesus. They just left the synagogue. So these people had to go out to find Jesus to make this accusation. They're now chasing him. And I think that's one of the things that's super sad. They could have just stayed in the synagogue by themselves and had their little, you know, love fest with each other and, and had their own little belief systems that they wanted. But they go following Jesus and chasing him down. If they would have just followed Jesus spiritually, they would have been in a lot better shape. But there's nobody left in the church, so that's why they're out doing it. They're trying to get people back in their churches. Well, come on back. So three methods to stop this verse 6, this holy work of Jesus so far. Verse 21, they said he's crazy. Verse 22, they made the argument that he's bad. Verse 31, they tried to do an intervention and lure people away from his ministry. Stop doing what you're doing. Who is this guy and who does he think he is? Right? So now we know what the enemy does and we can move on. Then here's a fourth attempt. His brothers and his mother came standing outside. They sent to him calling him. Verse 31. Verse 32. And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, Who's my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle, those who sat around him. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my God is my brother and my mother and my sister and my mother. So, gosh, I love just ending on this thought. There's so much here. They came and were calling him. Remember in verse 21, they thought he was nuts. Like we have to keep the context for Mark because he's moving so fast through this. His family who thinks he's nuts is now coming up. They wanted to lay hold of him and just physically haul him out of there. Now they're coming up calling to him. Hey, what are you doing over there? And I, I honestly, this is, I think the Bible has this in here for our learning and instruction. When we say there are things that belong to God, we are intrinsically saying those are things that no longer belong to my biological family. I'm going to take this thing and make it consecrated unto the Lord, and that is something that has precedence even over my family. A lot of families that struggle with that message. That's a tough message. So, And we try to keep those things in balance. Of course, we still love our family. Jesus loved his mother. He made sure John was there to take care of her. Jesus loved his brothers and his sisters. This isn't about love. This is about the ministry of Jesus and these different attacks in chapter 3 that are coming at that ministry of Jesus trying to get him away from it or trying to discredit him. So in this fourth thing, it's, 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 I think this is the toughest one because it's the people that he loves trying to call him away from the ministry. He's there on a Sabbath teaching the multitudes, preaching, and they're interrupting the teaching to get him to come do something else. Why don't you come back with us and come to synagogue? So Jesus um, responds to this with a question, who's my mother? So first of all, this is in direct conflict with the Roman Catholic belief that Mary was sinless, right? It's just, it doesn't fit. It's not biblical. At least she doesn't understand Jesus's ministry at this time. At least. At worst, she's actively trying to get him to stop doing this and calling him away. So that's the spectrum where we can see Mary in this picture. What Jesus is trying to say, again, is that when it comes to these things, again, this is Sabbath, this is the holy day. Jesus is doing what is holy on this day. And yet he's got his family saying, we need you with us. That's a really tough dialogue and a discussion. So they're making the argument, you have to be here because this is what we do as a family. And Jesus is saying, who are my brothers? The word there is Adelphos, which means brethren, means brothers and sisters, which is why in verse 35 he actually says brothers and sisters, right? It's just a generalized term for that. It means family. It's a gender-neutral term, my brethren. Who, who's my family? Um, same question, Matthew 5.22 has kind of that same usage of that word. Verse 34, he looked around in a circle. The, this is the, where we see the birth of the idea that church is family. So in response to this, the demon saying he's son of God, he founds a church. In response to his family saying that he needs to come away from what he's doing, he says, no, 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 this is family. And it's a different kind of family. It's a spiritual family. And so this is where we start to use that language. It's why we say, hey, brother, hey, sister. And we use this weird language that makes outsiders think that we're nuts. But we get the language from the scriptures. And he looks around in a circle and he says, this is my family. This is Sabbath. And I'm going to be with the people that do the will of my father. I'm going to be with my Jesus friends, my God people. And I'm going to hang out with them. So that synagogue building that he left, he's now on a mountain or these people have come to find him. The synagogue is wherever the family is. This is why we say that church isn't about a building. Church is wherever we meet together as a family. This is, they call him into a human tradition with obligations 
And Jesus calls them to a spiritual tradition that also has obligations. Now the two obligations are in conflict with one another. This is so sad. Unless they just came to synagogue with Jesus. And that, that does happen eventually. James becomes one of the leaders of the church. Mary, obviously, afterwards is, is telling stories about his birth to John so they can, or Luke, so they can record these things and document them. Jesus' argument here is that the first obligation is to the church. It's not that he doesn't love his family. And I think this is something where we see mistakes on both sides. We see people that just give in to their families and do whatever their family tells them they quote-unquote have to be doing. And then you see people that don't, that they totally disregard families, which is ungodly. It breaks a con commandment to not honor your mother and father. But when your mother and father are calling you away from Sabbath or church, that's a, that's a conflict. And which one gets priority there? Well, God does. So mom and dad, I will honor you six days a week, but you're asking me to do something on that seventh day that's really important to God. What I want is for my mom and dad to be there with me in that. Join me. Be part of it. So his biological family should be joining the circle, not being called away from it. Later on, they will join the circle. In that sense, and I think there's another great point here, Jesus' dismissal of his mother and brothers right here and sisters is not damning them to hell. He's not pushing them away so that they don't come back. He's simply setting up a boundary that he wants them to come cross into. Does that make sense? Like there's a huge difference there of saying, I don't need to listen to you and I don't need to do what you're doing versus saying, no, 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 God's told me to do this and I want you to come join me. They're very different messages, very different psychological frameworks. So in saying this kind of thing, like, you guys aren't my family, I don't owe anything to you, that isn't necessarily to push people away. Sometimes that kind of rebuke can draw people into the church. And we need to have the Holy Spirit telling us which one to use and when and where. There's different ways to attack the work of God. There's different ways to respond to the work of God. And in chapter 3, we've seen a lot of those. And it's going to keep going as we go through Mark. Everybody else is told that they're in Jesus' family. This is a huge contrast. Think of the good news here. Like he looks around the circle and says, you guys are in my family. He pronounces it. His word is spoken. And you know when God speaks, it's now truth. So out of his mouth, the word of God now speaks and that word becomes the actual thing. And he pronounces everybody in that circle as his brothers and sisters and his family. It's not that he has multiple biological mothers, but he's got some old ladies in the crowd and they're his mothers. And he just treats them that way. So there's this idea, this good news that goes out. The good news is you can be in the family with God. If you want to be in good with Messiah, follow him. You don't have to wear the tassels. You don't have to wear the, the bells on your robes. You don't have to do some of those obligations that were symbolic of Jesus. You just need to follow Jesus. We don't have to do the symbols anymore. It's so much better than being a guest at Jesus' table, but your family at his table. And even for the Roman world at this time and for the Jewish world, to be family was different than being a guest. You treated guests really nice, but that's different than just being a brother or sister. And you've seen that in the Bible study, right? There's a lot of us here. We're family. We're tight. But when we get a guest that visits us, they're kind of a guest for a few weeks. But then there's some shift when they just keep coming. And I remember when that shift happened. There's something that just clicks. We're like, oh, they're a brother now. They're a sister now. They're part of the family. And part of the family in a spiritual sense is simply making the decision to follow God instead of yourself or the world or other people. The definition of family in the church is very different than a biological family. 
The family is those who seek God. So for th three chapters, we see Jesus taking territory, claiming territory, and picking fights with people that don't see this. But the picking of the fights isn't to push them away for good. I think he's actually just trying to delineate truth from lies so people can get past the lies and come into a true relationship with God. And sometimes as believers, we need to know when to do that and how to do it. So in the next chapter, chapter 4, he's going to settle in. And for the first time in Mark, we're going to actually hear what Jesus says, which is all going to be part of what Mark just set up for three chapters. And this is what we should be doing on the Sabbath. We should come together and hear what Jesus says. So that's what he's doing on the Sabbath is he's going to teach the, the teaching of the day. And that's what we see in chapter 4. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you. We just thank you, Lord. And sometimes even as we struggle to get to know you and get to know your character, we thank you for Mark giving us such a different perspective on who you were and how you operated. And Lord, help us to understand that um, truth and love can take the form of a rebuke or a disagreement. And Lord, help us to always be um, in our hearts settled and peaceful and joyful about what we know and, and, and what we're doing, Lord. And help us not to not banter around with lies and attacks against your holy name and against your kingdom. Lord, help us to respond to those things in truth and in love, with grace and with peace, and, but Lord, to be resolved too. And Lord, help us in those situations, Lord, where maybe we run into people that are self-righteous, uh, legalistic. Lord, help us in situations where some of us are drawn by both our family um, biological family and our church family uh, for the same things, same times. And Lord, help us to give to you what belongs to you and to just be settled in that, Lord. Help us to be continually inviting people that are resisting your kingdom, Lord, because they are struggling with it, but we also know that the more they resist, the closer they are. So Lord, we pray for the souls of the people we love, our brothers, our sisters, our biological family and friends. Lord, we pray for those people that need to be in the body that it would be what's best for them. Lord, help them to see that, uh, soften their hearts. And Lord, help us to not get angry with them, um, but to draw them in and bring them into our family, our spiritual family. So Lord, we just pray for those things. And we just thank you for this example. You didn't have to put this in your word, but you did because you knew we would struggle with it. So we thank you that your word is good for teaching. It's good for opening our eyes to situations that um, seem unexplainable in our lives day to day. Lord, we pray for all of the people, Lord, that are not here that we love and care about as a body. And Lord, fill our hearts with love and patience and kindness. Lord, make us people that honor our parents. Make us people that are above reproach with everyone around us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.